Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. The various sheets you have in front of you, let me ask you to to look right now at the uh, material on Shekhinah. Mine is blue, but yours are, are white. So it just says uh, Shekhinah, the feminine half of God. And we'll look at some of those uh, teachings after I give some uh, introductory remarks. And I know that we're going to finish before 5 o'clock, right? That was the, the, the agreement. No. Uh, I'll, get, I'll talk a little bit, and then we'll study some of these passages. And we'll conclude with one passage from the Zohar. Uh, the main book of, of Kabbalah. So I, I want to start with uh, uh, simply the word Kabbalah itself. Uh, I like to begin exploring ideas by looking at the simple meaning of, of the Hebrew word. The root of Kabbalah is a root kabel, which means what? Anybody happen to know? Accepting. To receive. To accept or to receive or to welcome. So Kabbalah means, most literally, receiving, or that which has been received. And therefore, it means tradition. So on the one hand, this is something very ancient, wisdom that is received from teachers of the past. But receiving is something you can do right now. If we're receptive, if you're in a receptive mode, if you're open-minded, then new ideas can, can be explored. It's really uh, this combination of of new and ancient that makes Kabbalah so intriguing. It's ancient wisdom, but it's something contemporary or immediate, and we'll find a number of ways in which that paradox of of new and ancient plays itself out in in Kabbalah. Uh, The other thing we really have to define before we begin is mysticism. Okay, and and, uh, the rabbi mentioned that uh, he's an uber-rationalist, that I know that Mysticism is a very uh, hard word to define. What is mysticism, really? Mysticism is uh, direct experience of God. In other words, the mystic isn't satisfied with simply carrying out the divine commands, with fulfilling the requirements of religion. A mystic wants some direct contact with this ultimate reality called God. And there's often a tension between mysticism and the normal tradition of a religion. So we find that also in Kabbalah, because Kabbalah means receiving, it also means tradition, right? That which is received is often tradition, and Kabbalah really you could translate as tradition. It means receiving, it means that which has been received, and it means tradition. So how can something that's traditional also be mystical? Mystical is sometimes in conflict with the tradition. The mystic doesn't want to just do what's required according to the book, The mystic wants a direct experience of God. So there's a potential conflict between direct experience 
and the traditional formulations of a religion. So if mysticism is direct contact with God, where do we find that in Judaism? Okay, Kabbalah doesn't emerge until the Middle Ages. Kabbalah really begins in Provence and Spain in the 12th and 13th centuries. That's really where Kabbalah is born. It's born in, in, the, in medieval Europe. Judaism, of course, is much, much older. Do we have examples of direct contact with God before we get to Kabbalah? Certainly, if you open the Bible, you see direct contact with God all over the place. The prophets are really the mouthpiece of God. They're, they're conveying a direct experience they had. But let's go back to Moses. Moses at the burning bush, right? He really encounters the divine presence. It's too much for him to handle. It says, Vayaster Moshe et Panav in Hebrew. Moses hid his face. He sees this bush burning, but it's not consumed. He realizes something unusual is going on, and he's overwhelmed by the power of this manifestation of God. So we have a direct experience of God right in the Bible. Adam and Eve, certainly. Certainly so many of the biblical stories are God speaking to human beings, people encountering God. So if you, if you look at all the biblical accounts, I think the most dramatic... Yeah. Are we meant to take those accounts literally or not? I mean, you know, different, you could have different approaches to them, but I think if we start with a literal, simple meaning, God seems to reveal himself at various points through biblical narrative. I think the most dramatic is with Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel, he was exiled along with the people to Babylon around the year 600 BCE, and Ezekiel is standing by a river in Babylon, and he looks up and he sees a, a throne whirling through heaven, accompanied by angels. And on the throne, he sees what's called in Hebrew, Dumut Kimare Adam, the image like the appearance of a human. He sees God seated on the throne, but God seems to him to be like a, a person, a human being. So Ezekiel has this vision of the divine throne. It's the most dramatic description of God probably in the whole Hebrew Bible. Ezekiel's vision of God seated on the throne. That's the 600 BCE. Okay, from that until we come to the Kabbalah is 1,800 years. So during those 1,800 years, Ezekiel, until the Kabbalah emerges, Ezekiel's vision becomes the model for Jewish mystical experience. In other words, if you're a spiritual seeker, let's say during the time of the Talmud, and you want to have some direct contact with God, you will probably find yourself studying Ezekiel's account and trying to re-experience it. We have stories of rabbis in the, in the Talmud who actually tried to re-experience what Ezekiel had experienced through meditation, through chanting, through silence, maybe through fasting, Mushrooms. trying, huh? Mushrooms. Perhaps through some psychotropic uh, aids. They tried to re-experience what Ezekiel experienced, to picture themselves gazing up at, at heaven, to see as if the heavens were opening and have an, an experience of God. So accounts, accounts like that were written down. And as the Jews migrated from the Middle East to Europe, to Italy, and then to other parts of, of Europe, these teachings were, were further developed. Techniques of meditation were developed. And we have Jews who tried to reimagine God. 
to reimagine God in, in new ways. And that's really the background of, of the Kabbalah. Yeah. But isn't that idolatrous to create God in man's image? To create God in man's image. You know, it's interesting. Mark Twain has a wonderful line. He says, God created the human being in his image, and humans returned the compliment. <laughs> so in a sense, anything you say about God, it's hard for it not to be a projection of the human mentality or of human needs. You know, almost anything we say about God is, is an anthropomorphic, is a human description. So God seated on a throne certainly is. The Kabbalah, so Kabbalah now emerges, let's say in Provence, toward the end of the 12th century, we find small circles of Kabbalists, and they're really bothered by this, the question you just raised. How can God be limited to a human form? Who is the most famous Jewish thinker who raised this question? Maimonides. Maimonides, he died right before the Kabbalah emerges. And even though Maimonides was a rationalist, Maimonides himself was a deep spiritual seeker. His, his, his ideal existence, what Maimonides really wants to do more than anything else, is simply to think about God, to meditate on God. He sees the Messiah, he sees the world to come as a time where it'll just be pure meditation, just meditating on where the, where the human mind will reflect on the divine mind. Well, there'll actually be a link between the human mind and the divine mind. That's Maimonides' description of the ideal form of existence. He realizes for now we're on earth, we have to learn how to live, we have to follow Jewish practice, but for him the, the ideal form of existence is to meditate on the divine mind, for the human mind to join the divine mind. Now, your question is very helpful for, for beginning to explore Kabbalah, because what Kabbalah really says is that we have to find a way to talk about God that's beyond human description. So what's the most accurate thing you can say about God? According to Kabbalah, it's simply infinity. God is infinity. That's the name the Kabbalah gives to the ultimate reality of God. The Hebrew is what? En sof. Literally, the two Hebrew words, en, there is not, sof, end. There is no end. That's the modern Hebrew word for infinity. When mathematicians in Israel talk about infinity, they use that term, en sof. So en sof means infinity. For Kabbalah, that's the only accurate thing you really can say about God. Anything else you say is a human projection. God is the king. What do you mean a king? People are kings. God is ruler. God is judge. God is warrior. God is father in heaven. All of those are human projections. None of them really do justice to the reality of God. So in Sof, God is infinity, is what the Kabbalah really insists on. But what's the problem? The human mind can't wrap itself around infinity. There's no way to really understand infinity. We can say we know what infinity means, but to really feel that you have a grasp on infinity is impossible, because the infinity is that which cannot be defined. It can't be grasped. It can't be comprehended. You can't think if any of us try to think what is infinity, the mind just starts to, to give up. At a certain point, the mind surrenders and says, I don't understand infinity. I realize there is something called infinity, but I can't really know it from the inside. But Kabbalah says, ultimately, God is infinity. But much of the Kabbalah is devoted to what comes out of infinity. What comes out of infinity? According to Kabbalah, ten qualities of God. 
what are called the 10 Sifirot. I don't want to go into detail about the Sifirot because it gets very complex. I know our friend David is trying to write a whole book now about Ensof and the Sifirot, and you, you yourself told me you don't want to go into depth <laughs> about the Sifirot because you can get lost there too. You can get lost in infinity. You can get lost in these 10 Sifirot. But basically, what are the Sifirot? Aspects of God's personality. And when I say personality, we're back in the human realm because that's just the way the human mind works. We, we, we project ourselves onto whatever we're describing. So Kabbalah says, ultimately, God is beyond what we can say, but we need to reach out to God. We need to picture God in some way. So according to these 10 sefirot, what are some of them? Love and power. This is one pair of, of, of almost opposites, God's love and God's raw power. That, that sefirah that's called power is also called judgment. So love and judgment. It's also called fear. Now think of love and fear. Let's forget about God for a moment. Just think of human relations, love and fear. Sometimes the person you're most in love with, you're also somewhat terrified of, right? Because you're bearing yourself to, say, your spouse. You're bearing yourself to another human being. You're, you're in a love relationship, but it's somewhat scary, too, because you're vulnerable. Your, your own weaknesses are, 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 are showing. So sometimes love and fear are, are opposites that, that can balance each other out. According to Kabbalah, God also includes love and awe, or love and fear. Ideally, those two are balanced at the place which is harmony. That, that's, that middle sefirah called harmony, uh, referred to, described as harmony, is, is given the name compassion. But why compassion? Because compassion is where you love, but you don't drown the other person with that love. But I think we probably all had this experience where someone might love you so much, they don't leave you room to be yourself. It's kind of a love that, that drowns the other person. So love with, without any boundary can be, can be destructive be harmful. But if the love is balanced with some, with some limitation, with some boundaries, then it becomes compassion. So it's one example of opposite qualities within God that ideally reach a place of, of harmony or balance. So these sefirot are divine qualities, but also things that human beings can cultivate or can, or can work on. And the most interesting of all the the pairs of the sefirot is the one we're going to focus on here today, which is the masculine and the feminine. This, I think, is probably the, one of the greatest contributions of the Kabbalah to balance the patriarchal depiction of God with the feminine. But in, in almost all of Western religion, God is male. But Judaism, Christianity, Islam, it's very unusual to find a description of God as feminine. That's certainly true within Judaism, too. The Bible and the Talmud and the Midrash, God is the king, God is the father, God is ruler. Where do you find God described as mother within Judaism? Here and there you'll have an image or a metaphor, but it's really only in the Kabbalah that God is described as equally masculine and feminine, equally male and, and female. And that is the, this term, uh, Shekhinah. Shekhinah means... Literally, let's start with the root meaning. Shekhinah literally means dwelling. Shachan, the Hebrew verb shachan means to dwell. In modern Hebrew, shachin is a neighbor. Shechunah is a neighborhood. 
Mashkon is a mortgage. <laughs> mortgage you pay for, for dwelling, for your, for your dwelling, for your house. All, all from this root shachan. The word shechina never comes in the Bible, but we do have the root, for example, in the word mishkan. The M is just a prefix. Very often the M in Hebrew is a prefix. So what is the mishkan? The mishkan is that portable synagogue that the Israelites are commanded to build and carry with them as they wander through the desert. It's often translated the tabernacle. But literally, it means dwelling, God's dwelling. God says, build me a holy place, v'shachanti b'tocham, I will dwell among them. Have Israel build me a mishkan, and I will dwell among them. So that's this root that eventually becomes shechinah. As I say, the word shechinah doesn't come in the, in the Torah, or the Bible, but the, the, the root does. The rabbis invent this word Shekhinah to mean what? God's presence in the world. So don't think that God is just up in heaven. God's presence fills the world, and the word that describes that imminence of God, the presence of God, is Shekhinah. Let's look at uh, the first quote here. The rabbis ask an interesting question uh, when Moses sees God at the burning bush. We referred to that, I referred to that a few minutes ago. Uh, the rabbis say, why did God reveal himself to Moses in a bush? Couldn't he have picked something a little more impressive? Uh, a cedar tree, a palm tree, why some shrub? The rabbis say the reason is to show us there's no place empty of Shekhinah. En makom ba'aretz panui min ha-shekhinah. There's no place on earth empty of shekhinah. Which don't think that God is just in a spectacular mountain or just uh, in the heavens. God can be found anywhere, even in a bush. And the word they use to, to describe that is shekhinah. So God's omnipresence is sometimes the word you hear. Omnipresence. God is present everywhere. That's what shekhinah means. God being present everywhere. The second quote, all of these are from the Talmud and the Midrash, except for the last one. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the Zohar. The second quote is, wherever Israel went in exile, Shekhinah was with them. So what's the point here? If Israel is in exile, don't think that God has abandoned you. There's some aspect of God that still is with you, and that aspect of God that accompanies the people Israel is called Shekhinah. So Shekhinah means God's presence in the world and God's intimacy with the Jewish people. Okay, if Israel goes down to Egypt, Shekhinah is with them. To Babylon, when they're exiled to Babylon, Shekhinah is with them. To Europe, even to the Southwest, Shekhinah is still, is still with us. So Shekhinah is God's presence in the world, but God's love and compassion for the, for the Jewish people. Internally, that's how the mystics understand it. Or the, the, the Torah says, have them build me a holy place, and I will dwell among them. Bitocham, I will dwell among them, but you could also translate that as I will dwell within them. The Hebrew word bitoch can mean within or among. So that's, that's a question. That's a question which I think makes us, it's a challenge to any traditional theology. I think the Holocaust forces us 
to rethink what it means to, to have a God. For, for me, what, what, that, what that does, that question of, of evil in the world and does God respond to evil, that really forces me to, to say, I don't accept a God who's up there running the show. To me, God is simply the energy that animates everything. Almost like a scientist would describe um, energy and matter. Energy turns into matter. Right? What a physicist would say is that matter is simply frozen energy. If the energy slows down enough, it becomes what we call matter. But ultimately, matter is energy that's taken a certain form. To me, God is, is, is a name we give to the energy that animates everything. It's not a person. It's not a being who intervenes in history or stops things or starts things or prevents, doesn't prevent people from doing things. It's the constituent energy of everything that exists. Then it's up to us to decide how to work with that energy, whether to do positive or negative things with that. Whereas I don't blame God for what happens because my, my, my theology isn't, isn't a God who intervenes in history. To me, God is what makes up everything. How people act depends on, on, on us. It's up to us. Blaming it on God, I think, is a way to almost pass the buck. People have to decide how, how they act. We can't expect someone to come down and, and, and prevent a human evil action. I'm forced into that reevaluation because of, of things stock, like the Holocaust. You make, the stock maker, you make the stock and you walk away from it and you let the clock run on itself? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't even say that, that, that God is the clock maker. I think God, God is the... the the energy which, which forms it, but it's human beings who, who build or, or construct. How the world began, that I'm going to give a talk about tonight, God and the Big Bang. To me, the, the way a cosmologist speaks about the origin of the universe is very similar to how Kabbalah speaks about, about the beginning. But it's, 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 it's a, 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 you know, physicists call this a singularity, a tiny, tiny, tiny point which expands and explodes and becomes the cosmos. There's not someone saying, now it's time for that to happen. We don't know how it all began. Even, if, even a physicist, an honest physicist, would not be able to tell you how it all began. An honest physicist will say, we can explain things up to 10 to the minus 43 second after the Big Bang. That's one trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. They say, from then on, we can tell you how it happens. There's this much hydrogen, there's this much helium. It takes a long time for, for even atoms to exist because it's all just a plasma. It's all a plasma you know, that's not solid or liquid or gas. It takes about 300,000 years for the energy to cool down enough to even have atoms. And then gradually through gravity, enough hydrogen atoms will come together to form a, a star. And then that star will, with its gravity, will, will assemble a solar system around it. So from 10 to the minus 43 second on, they can explain. Before that, an honest physicist will say, well, we don't know. So I'm happy to say I don't know either. <laughs> There's a very important line in, in the Talmud that says, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Right? People love to say, oh, I know. But this, there's so much we don't know. But I think saying I don't know is, is the only 
honest answer to that. How did it all begin? But because of, the, of what you said, I, th that's forced me and has forced many people to, to, to rethink what it means to, to be God. Every time God interceded, it never worked. They had the Ten Commandments, and then they built the yoke. Uh-huh, 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 yes. People are, people are, are, are we're, we're, we're very stubborn, right? Not only the Israelites, humanity seems to be very, very stiff-necked. So your description of God needs a very Mandelian description of God mm. as per the God of the perplexed. Yeah. Mm. It's a very one-on-one, I would say, uh -huh. and description of God, and it's a description that I personally, my theology is uh -huh. very much uh -huh. in line with your description of God. Right. The question is, would you say that that's the description of God according to mysticism and Kabbalah? So what's interesting is that Maimonides died right before Kabbalah emerged. Okay, Maimonides died in, in 1204. Within a few decades, Kabbalah emerges. The Kabbalists have a have a, a complicated relationship with, with Maimonides. They've learned a lot from Maimonides. They've learned basically that God is infinity. Okay, Maimonides doesn't say that, but as you, as you picked up, the, what, what Kabbalah calls Ein Sof, God is infinite, is very close to Maimonides' description of God. Maimonides too, God is so abstract, it's hard to imagine that abstract God really intervening in history. God seems to be pure being. And that, that is what Kabbalah does is they accept what Maimonides says, but they say from our perspective, God also has these ten qualities called the Sifirot. Luriana Kabbalah comes out of, 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 of the Zohar. Everything in Luria is really based on, on the Zohar. My, my own interest is in the earlier stage of Kabbalah, Zohar, but there's not... There's not a, because I don't think that there is a similitude between... Although you know, the thing is, the way Kabbalah formulates it may not, but Kabbalah, Maimonides would also say that the, the human mind can join with the divine mind. It is possible. For, for Maimonides, that's what prophecy is. If your mind actually connects with the divine mind, then God can think through you. But I, I would say this. I would say each of us is one fraction of, of God. Each of us is one, one fraction of God. God isn't something out there. God, God, is, God is a name that we give to the oneness of it all. The soul, you could say, is a spark or a fraction of God. Now, it's interesting. If you go back to infinity, according to mathematics, a fraction of infinity is what? Infinity. Is infinite. A fraction of infinity is infinite. Well, that sounds crazy, but the reason that has to be is if a fraction of infinity were not infinite, then we could figure out how big infinity is. <laughs> If we knew exactly what, what, what one millionth or one billionth or one, if we knew what one trillionth of infinity is, we could easily figure out how big infinity is, but we can't. So even a fraction of infinity is infinite. So each of us is one fraction of infinity. We share in the infinite nature of God. We don't know it. Usually we think, ah, oh, I'm just one limited person. But think of a baby. 
What's going on in a baby's mind? I would say every baby is a mystic. Because a baby doesn't distinguish itself from, from everything. That's why it's so dangerous to be a baby. <laughs> right? The baby doesn't know where it ends and the stove begins. Or where it ends and the street begins. You don't want to become one with a truck moving down the street. So we have to teach the baby to realize it is a limited self. And every baby learns that. Each of us once thought we were the whole universe. When we're born, we think we're everything. We don't know that mother is different from us. We don't know that the walls that we think we are everything. In fact, that's what the Midrash says about Adam. Adam saw from one end of the universe to the other. Adam, Adam and Eve thought they were the whole universe. Then they eat from the tree of knowledge, and they realize, huh, I'm separate. I'm an ego. We all learn to believe that we are separate. And we can't survive very long unless we really believe we're separate. So the only way to make it in the world is to convince ourselves we are separate. But the baby knows something more profound. Each of us remembers, I think, even, that once we thought we were the whole universe. Now, you could say it's stupid to think you're the universe. We really are separate. Each of us is a separate individual. But something inside of us remembers being more than we are. And that's really what, what mysticism is, is trying to reconnect with that feeling of, of being of being one with everything. It's not very healthy to think that. It's going to get you in trouble if you think you are the universe. You're going to get killed. You're going to get punched in the mouth. If you tell somebody, you know, I am you, it just sounds like madness. But something, what mysticism is, it's saying we pay a great price for being boxed into our ego mentality. And we have to find some way to, to stretch out or to to expand our awareness, how do we do that? Sometimes by falling in love, or by reading a poem, or by gazing at the, at the sunset. We have certain experiences that allow us to, to get beyond our, our boundaries of ego. And then most of the time, we're, we're within our boundaries. We have to get to work. We have to pick up the kids at 3 o'clock. We have to get things done in the world. The only way you can get things done in the world is if you accept that limited definition. Very quickly, I went to a Musar course, you know, from Beit Midrash. Uh -huh. They talk about the Neshama, mm -hmm. and that they have these soul traits around the Neshama, but you have to learn how to balance. How does Musar compare to Kabbalah? Are there any similarities? There are a lot of similarities. There is a, there's an, a mystical Musar movement that, that, that developed within, within Kabbalah. And what's usually called Musar is a later movement, which wasn't rooted in Kabbalah. But what, what the mystical Musar would say is you should imitate these qualities of God. Well, I mentioned, for example, love and awe. You should cultivate a feeling of love, and you should realize how that has to be bounded and, and limited and channeled effectively. So there, there are techniques for imitating the divine qualities. Though that becomes a, a mystical Musar. Neshama is one of the names. Neshama is one of the names for soul. Uh, sometimes it's seen that nefesh, ruach, neshama are three levels of soul according to Kabbalah, but very often neshama itself can mean can mean all of soul. Literally, neshama means breath, which is beautiful because it shows you the connection between breathing and uh, spiritual a spiritual path. Breathing becomes a form of, 
a technique of meditation. So the same word in Hebrew that means breath means soul. That's true in English too, spirit. Spirit comes from the Latin spiritus, breath, and it also means the, the soul. Doesn't it also go back to the unity of the soul after death? So the souls go back in like possible regeneration? You could, say, you could say the death is a reunion of, of our fraction with the, with the whole, so the soul is reunited with God. According to Kabbalah, in certain cases, there would be the opportunity to come back to the world through reincarnation. That you find in, in the Zohar, and then with Luria, it becomes more of a, a universal principle that everyone's soul is, is reincarnated. Basically, for the Zohar, if you haven't had the opportunity to, to perfect what you need to perfect in the world, then you, you experience reincarnation. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay, let's, uh, let's come back to Shekhinah. This is what happens with Kabbalah. You start, you start studying and it says, ah, but that reminds me of this, that makes me think of this. And it's, it's very useful what we're doing, but I want to uh, progress a little bit here so we finish before 5 o'clock. Look at number three. Happy are the righteous, for they cause Shekhinah to dwell on earth. Happy are the righteous, for they cause Shekhinah to dwell on earth. Now that's a little strange, because we said Shekhinah is on earth. Shekhinah fills the universe. Shekhinah is God's presence in the world. Why do you have to cause Shekhinah to dwell on earth? You might say that Shekhinah, or God, God is potentially in the world, but unless you act ethically, unless you act spiritually, you don't really you don't really actualize that divine potential. One of the names for Shekhinah in Kabbalah is Sod HaEfshar. Sod HaEfshar, the secret of the possible. It's one of the names for Shekhinah, the secret of the possible. In other words, God is potentially in the world, but unless we act lovingly toward one another, we exclude God from the world. In other words, God can be in the world, but only if you let her in. Only if you let him or her in. Only if you let it in. If we act selfishly, if we act greedily, if we act violently, then it's as if we're shoving God out of the world. So to be righteous is to make a place to, to, to invite God into your life. What does it mean to invite God into your life? To, to let go of ego a little bit. There's no way to let go of ego totally. I mean, it's, it's, it seems almost impossible. But to to let down some of the barriers that we put up against other people or against other new ideas, that would be allowing, allowing this oneness to come in a little bit more. So how did you translate Sodha Afshar? Sodha Afshar is literally the secret of the possible. In other words, God is possibly in the world. God is potentially in the world. But to be righteous is to, to actualize that potential, to make it, to make it real. Okay, and number four, we're just about to get to, to the Zohar. Number four is the last one before we get to the Zohar. This is from the Talmud. When Rav Yosef heard his mother's footsteps, he would say, I will arise before Shekhinah, who is approaching. Okay, this one rabbi, when he heard his mother come into the room, he said, I have to get up because the Shekhinah is coming into the room. Now, who is coming into the room? His mother. 
But for this rabbi, his mother was an embodiment of Shekhinah. He, he was so in love with his mother, he felt she was a manifestation of the divine feminine. This is interesting to me because this shows you that for this rabbi, Shekhinah is, is already feminine. Now, I, I've told you Shekhinah is the feminine half of God, but that formulation you don't find until we get to the Kabbalah. Okay, in these earlier texts, she's not the feminine half of God, she's the divine presence, or she's intimacy with the Jewish people, what, what we saw. When we get to the Kabbalah, she's actually half of God. She's the feminine half of God. But for this Talmudic rabbi, he already has a sense that she, that there's a feminine quality to her. They could say that she's the origin of goodness for him. Yeah, I mean, she's the origin of life. And because she's the origin of life, she, she birthed him. She created him, in a sense. She brought him into the world. So she's the divine. She's the divine power. Okay, we're, we're ready, we're almost ready now to, to look at a passage from the Zohar, but I have to tell you a little bit about what the Zohar is. I've spent the past two decades of my life translating the Zohar from Aramaic to English. This is a very interesting story. I'll just tell you very briefly how this happened. I, I was teaching Jewish studies for many years in Berkeley, and I got a phone call in about 20 years ago, in 1995, from someone who said, uh, there's a wealthy family, the Pritzker family in Chicago. They own the Hyatt chains. And I had never heard of them, but he said, there's this wealthy family who wants to hire you to translate the Zohar. So I, I said, this, uh, that's interesting. I said, let me think about that a little. So I thought about it for a day, for a week, for a few weeks, for a month, for a few months. Finally, I said, look, I better try this. So before I responded or said it, committed myself or anything, I said, let me try it for a month. So for one month, during my winter break from teaching, I sat down, and every day I translated Zohar. For four hours, five hours, six hours, as long as I could handle it. And after that month, I decided I'm definitely not doing this. <laughs> it was just, it was too draining. I said, how can I keep this up? I didn't know how long it would take, but I said, how, long, how can I keep this up? So I called my friend who had conveyed the, the offer. I said, look, this is an amazing opportunity, but I just have to decline. He said, he said something very crafty to me. He said, he said, I understand, but why don't you at least meet with them, meet with the Pritzkers and tell them no. <laughs> so that was my mistake. I agreed to meet with them. And we sat down. Now, how, why, why were the Pritzkers interested in the Zohar? A woman in the family, Mrs. Pritzker, Margot Pritzker, who's married to Tom Pritzker, who's the CEO of the Hyatt Corporation. Margot Pritzker was in love with studying Torah, and she was studying Torah with an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago, a fellow named Yechiel Pupko. I don't know if you, anyone has heard of him. He's an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago. And they were studying the weekly Torah portion, Parashat Shavua and Midrash. And finally, Ms. Margot Pritzker said, I want to study Zohar. So there's an older English translation of the Zohar called the Sonsino Zohar. And they started studying this. And after a few weeks, the rabbi said to her, or she said to him, let's do a new translation. <laughs> It's, it's not a very good translation. It skips all the erotic material, which is about one-third of the Zohar. And it skips all the difficult passages, which is about half of the Zohar. So it, it basically paraphrases the Zohar. And it's written without a commentary. So that's why they, they had approached me. It was really just came out of their, their Torah study. And so I sat down, and I, we met at, at a Hyatt hotel at the O'Hare Airport. Rabbi Pupko and Margot Pritzker and myself and the fellow who had called me, who they had asked to contact me originally. So I basically tried to talk her out of it, and I said, look, I, it's an amazing 
project, but uh, I, I just don't feel I can do it. She said, I understand, but if you did do it, how long would it take? <laughs> I said, 12 to 15 years. She said, you're not scaring me. <laughs> and somehow when she said that, something flipped in my mind, and it was like almost she was daring me. Like, I'm not scared, how come you're scared? So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And, and ever since then, for, it took 18 years, I translated, I produced what, nine volumes uh, that Stanford University Press published. It's called the Zohar Pritzker Edition. And I did nine volumes, which covers the Zohar and the Torah. And now three more volumes are being done, other parts of the Zohar. Zohar on Song of Songs, on Ruth, other sections. And the final volume will be out in a month or two. And uh, that's why now I'm free to go around and teach and <laughs> travel. I'm not sitting in my Zohar cave. And so I've been translated. So what is the Zohar? The Zohar is a mystical commentary on the Torah, but it's also a novel. Let me say a novel. Were there novels written in the 13th century? It's a medieval experiment in fiction. It describes rabbis wandering through the Galilee, sharing secrets of Torah, running into strange characters on the road. They'll run into a little child. And it turns out the child knows more than the rabbis. The child will start making fun of the rabbis, in fact. Or they'll run into an old donkey driver who seems to be like a total idiot. But he's really a great sage in disguise. So it's like a picaresque novel. It's running into colorful, somewhat questionable characters on the road. And then the rabbis go off and, and talk about what the Torah portion means. So it's a combination of a commentary on the Torah and a medieval experiment in, in fiction. It was written in Spain in the 13th century by a Kabbalist named Moses de Leon. Moses de Leon. From, the, from Leon in northwestern Spain. But the amazing thing about the Zohar is Moses de Leon never admitted that he was the author. He claimed that he was copying from an ancient manuscript that went back over a 1,000 years earlier and had been written by a famous rabbi of the Talmud named Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. Very colorful Talmudic rabbi. And Moses de Leon said, I'm just copying out from this ancient manuscript that somehow came to me from the land of Israel, and I'm making copies available. And apparently he sold them as ancient wisdom. So why did he attribute it to this ancient rabbi? Either so that it could sell well, or because of his radical ideas. What was the holy lamp? Hmm? The holy lamp. The holy lamp is his name. How did you know that? You've been reading. You've been reading. You have. You have. Uh, yeah, I, I, yes. Yes. You told me. You. You told me you have uh, eight volumes. You have. No, no. no. You've been reading it. You said. Ah, you have. But you've been reading. So the Holy Lamp is a name for. Gershom Sholem. So the Holy Lamp is is the title given to Rabbi Shimon. Botsina Kadisha, in Aramaic. The Holy Lamp is the name given to, to the, the master of the whole circle, Rabbi Shimon. So Moses the Land is writing it, but the main characters are Rabbi Shimon and a whole circle of rabbis who are his, his disciples, his devotees. So you know, if he had come out and said, if Moses the Land had said, I have an idea, God is a woman, it might not have gone over so well. Right? Everyone thinks God is male, God is the father, God is the king. But, so what does Moses de Leon say? Mo, that Rabbi Shimon, the ancient Rabbi Shimon, is teaching us about the Shekhinah, 
that she is the feminine half of God, and she's married to the Holy One, blessed be he. Who is the Holy One, blessed be he? That's the most common name you have in the Talmud for God. The main name the rabbis give to God is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be he. So that's what you find in the, in, the, in the Talmud. There's only the Holy One, blessed be he. In the Zohar, the Holy One, blessed be he, is the husband, and Shekhinah is his wife. They are the divine couple. Ideally, they are united. But they can only be united. Their union can only be consummated, how? By us. Human beings stimulate the union of the divine couple. How? Through performing the mitzvot. If you do a holy act, if you, if you act lovingly towards your neighbor, if you fulfill the do's and don'ts of the Torah, then this couple unites. If we act wickedly, then the couple is divorced. So it's up to us whether God really becomes whole, becomes truly unified or not. A lot of power is invested in, in the human being. That's one of the, of the, of the main teachings of, of the Zohar. Sure, please. As you were saying this, I'm thinking back to the creation story where it's as if Adam and Eve are one. And I'm wondering, is this the same? <coughs> you could say, you know, the human couple is modeled on the divine couple. So there, you know, if a human couple unites, that also stimulates the, the divine union. But we're going to cut the passage we're going to read in the Zohar is exactly about that, about Adam and Eve what uh, about their being in the garden and, and their relationship to Shekhinah. So let's look at this and then ask your question again if it, if it, if it seems like it, it's going to fit. So what the Zohar does is it moves through the Torah, not every single verse, but every major story, every major event, and it gives it a new mystical meaning. It's a mystical interpretation of the Torah. That's basically what the Zohar is, combined with these stories of wandering on the road and running into, into colorful characters. So let's look at this, this passage, number five. I have to give you one or two uh, bits of info to make sense of it. The first is simply, how many of you uh, can, can read these Hebrew words or can follow it if I read it? Okay, if you can't, then look at, just look at the English. He drove out. The Hebrew is vayigaresh, which means he drove out. Then we have this little word et. Okay, even if you don't know Hebrew, look at, look at the second word. Look at the, if you're looking at the English line, he drove out, and then you see, you see two Hebrew words, et ha'adam. Okay, et, you see it's spelled aleph taf. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Taf is the last letter of the alphabet. So this word et means what in Hebrew? It's just a marker for the direct object. It doesn't mean anything. Now, it's weird that a word wouldn't mean anything, but in Hebrew, this word et, you really can't translate it, at least in this sentence. He drove out et ha'adam. Et is just a marker for the direct object. Okay, and in Hebrew, you can't say, I drink the water. You have to say, I drink et the water. You can't say, I see the picture. You say, I see et the picture. So et is just what links the verb and the object. And actually, you don't need et if you don't have the, the definite article. You can say, I drink water, you don't need et. Ani shoteh mayim. But I drink the water, ani shoteh et 
hamayim. If you have the definite article for the object, the, you need it to be preceded by et. It's very strange. Grammarians call this a particle. Why do they call it a particle? Because they don't know what to call it. They have to call it something. They call it a particle. I like to think that what it is is, it's, remember, it's aleph and taf. So it's like the alpha and the omega, or like A to Z. So I like to think that what you're saying is, I see, and before you say what it is that you see, you say it could be aleph to taf. It could be anything that I'm seeing. It could be A to Z. It could be alpha to omega. It's et. And then you say what it is specifically that, that you're seeing. I doubt that that's the real origin of et, but uh, I haven't heard a better one, so I, I, I offer that. So the Hebrew says, Vayigaresh, he drove out, et ha'adam, the human, or Adam. Okay, he drove out Adam. What is this describing? God's expelling Adam and Eve from the garden. Okay, so the, the subject, he, obviously refers to God. God drove out Adam. The only other thing we have to know before we look at what the Zohar says is this verb, legaresh, to drive out, can also mean in Hebrew, to divorce. The divorce is described as a kind of expulsion, gerushin, in the Hebrew word for divorce. So you could even interpret this verse, he divorced Adam. And there's one midrash, there's one rabbinic commentary that says it's as if Adam and Eve, it's as if God and Adam were married. But because Adam sinned, God divorced Adam. How do we know that God divorced Adam? Because it says, Vayigaresh, he divorced Adam. Okay, so you could translate Vayigaresh, not he drove out, but he divorced. Okay, we're ready now to study the Zohar. For some of you, this is maybe the first teaching from the Zohar you've ever studied. But it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting one. Rabbi Elazar said, we do not know who divorced whom. Okay, so he's playing on that rabbinic interpretation that the verb legaresh doesn't mean drive out. It means divorce. He says, we don't know who divorced whom. If the blessed Holy One divorced Adam or... Well, what's the alternative? Adam divorced God. The Zohar doesn't want to say something so shocking. What does the Zohar say? Or not. So it's beautiful. This is how the Zohar works. What is it doing? It's forcing you to come up with this radical, shocking alternative. The Zohar doesn't say it. It just says, did God divorce Adam or not? But that not forces us to think, huh, wait a minute, what's the alternative? Adam divorced God? And that's what the Zohar is saying, but it doesn't say it. It makes you say it mentally. Did the Blessed Holy One divorce Adam or not? But the word is transposed. I think that means the whole verse is turned on its head. The whole word is turned upside down. How? Look how he's reading it. He drove out et. He's putting the period after the word et. It's not he drove out et, Adam. He drove out et. Now, what is et? This I didn't tell you. Any question I ask for the next five minutes, the correct answer is Shekhinah. <laughs> okay, now who is et? Who is et? Now, why is et Shekhinah? Because she's Aleph to Taf. She's the totality. She's the divine presence. She includes everything in, in, the, in the cosmos. Or at least she includes all of the divine qualities. Because of those 10 sefirot, those 10 qualities I referred to, Shekhinah is the 10th, including all the preceding ones. So in the Zohar, she's given the name Et. Now, it's interesting. 
In the Talmud and the Midrash, okay, we're talking about the Zohar here, 13th century. In the earlier rabbinic texts, certain rabbis loved to interpret the word et. Why do they interpret it? Because it's a word that's there thousands of times. Right? Every time you have a direct object, you have the word et, but it doesn't mean anything. So that's too good for a rabbi to pass up. <laughs> Here's a word that comes all over the place, and it includes A to Z. It can't be translated. So rabbis, especially Rabbi Akiva, you've all heard of Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva was the teacher of Rabbi Shimon, to whom the Zohar is attributed, and who is really the main character in the Zohar. So Akiva loved to interpret et, and the Zohar says, well, et is actually a code name for Shekhinah. So what does the verse mean now? He drove out Shekhinah. Now, who drove out Et? Then we read the following word in the verse, which is Adam. Adam actually drove out Et. Notice the Zohar doesn't say Shekhinah. The Zohar doesn't make it easy for the reader. The Zohar very rarely gives the actual names of the Sefirot. But, but 50 pages later, it will say, by the way, Et is a code name for Shekhinah. So the Zohar is intentionally cryptic. It's an intentionally difficult text. When I translated it, I wrote a very extensive commentary, too. Sometimes the commentary fills more of the page than the translation, because everything in the Zohar is a code and is intentionally perplexing. But you see what he's doing with the verse. The verse is simply, he drove out et ha'adam. But the Zohar says, put the period after et. He drove out et. Who drove out et? Then we read the next word, ha'adam. Adam drove out at. Consequently, it's written, Yudhevave Elohim, this is double name for God, Yudhevave Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. Why did he expel him? Because Adam drove out at, as we have explained. I love that, as we have explained. First of all, <laughs> he didn't explain it. And second of all, when did he say it at all? <clears throat> Two lines earlier. But now it's tradition. <laughs> this is what I call instant tradition. Okay, and the Zohar does this. Again, that's new and ancient. It's a new interpretation, a radically new interpretation, but he says this, is, this has been explained. So he, in, other words, in other words, the Zohar does not deny that God expelled Adam from the garden, but he says why did God expel him? Because Adam had already driven out Adam. Which is what Talmud says, right? Which is what? Talmud says that if, when we do evil, we drive away the Shekhinah. Yes, yes, the Talmud says that. If you sin, you, you step on the toes of Shekhinah, or you, you force Shekhinah away. Right, and this is the first time that, that, that happened. So it sounds interesting, but what does that mean, that Adam expelled God from the garden? Yeah. Going back to your discussion or analogy about the baby and not identifying differences, and you previously referred to the tree of knowledge, but of mm. course the full name of the tree of knowledge is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. So when <clears throat> it helps me to think about, you know, Adam, you said, could you know, see from one end of the universe to the other. Uh, there was that unity. In other words, God's, uh, Adam's vision, like the baby's, was unity. Everything is this. And then when <clears throat> Adam eats from the tree of diversity, differences between good Learning and to make distinctions to make between distinctions, things. The tree of consciousness of distinctions, mm -hmm. then that becomes forefront in Adam's, in Adam's awareness, and therefore Adam drives out the unity from his awareness. Beautiful. Mm. Right. He's now convinced of these distinctions, and that most basic distinction, self, 
and other. So he's lost the, the oneness. So by dr driving out God from the garden is a way to say that he's lost the oneness. Now he's sure he knows who he is. He's an individual, and Eve is an individual, and they find themselves out of paradise. Just by thinking that you're separate, you, you've, you've excluded yourself from that, from that field, from that unified field. Yeah, I think, I think, that's, uh, I think that's what the Zohar is Im implying here. Is there a poss possibility that the human has a male and a female side, and they're combined in mm. one organism? That, that, yeah. In order to be a righteous person, uh -huh. person or, or complete. and accept both sides. Yeah, I mean, Ca Carl Jung, Carl Jung really taught that. That was the basis of a lot of his psychology, that every man has a hidden feminine part within himself he should embrace, he should realize every woman has a hidden masculine part, what he calls the animus and the anima. The anima is the feminine quality, the animus, the masculine. And physically, biologically, we, we seem to be one gender, but we have other qualities within us we, we need to explore. And the Kabbalah says God is androgynous, that God is male and female. Mm -hmm. And even according to Genesis, right, Eve is created from Adam. We often say from Adam's rib, but the Hebrew with its translated rib could also mean side. One side was masculine, one side was feminine. So Adam and Eve originally were one androgynous being, and that reflects God's androgynous quality. So Shekhinah, and the Holy One, blessed be He, are the female and male halves of God, which were originally united, and which can be reunited if we act in ethical ways or in holy ways. So there's a human and a divine androgyny. Yeah. So coming back to your question, does this uh, address it at all, or how, how would you ask it at, at this point? It's the androgynous figure uh -huh. that I was thinking of. So. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when you talked about being expelled from the Garden of Eden, I was thinking, was eating an apple or whatever they did, was it a conscious act, or is it like evolution that they became knowledgeable? Mm. Maybe like the baby growing up and becoming mm. knowledgeable, you have to yeah. in your world. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's wrong to see it as a fall or as a sin. It's just, it just maturing. It's what happens naturally. We become aware of being an individual. But something in us still yearns for that, that lost innocence. So we have to find some way to, you know, to get back to the garden, some way to reacquaint ourselves with Shekhinah. And Shabbat really you know, serves that role within, within Judaism, a way to, right, to welcome Shekhinah back. So it's no accident that the Kabbalah identifies Shekhinah with the Sabbath queen. The Sabbath queen, the Sabbath bride. So every Friday night we should welcome Shekhinah back. We should, we're trying to find a way to, to re-experience that, that oneness that we had to give up in order to, to grow. You know, Franz Kafka has a beautiful line. He says, the sin isn't that we ate from the tree of knowledge. The sin is that we haven't yet eaten from the tree of life. Right, because there's a tree of knowledge and a tree of life. And both of them are there. So you have a little taste of, uh, of Zohar, of Kabbalah. Any, any other questions Even about this or more generally about, about Kabbalah? We can talk for a few more minutes. Uh, apparently, the, the way Hindu 
literature is set up is to blame women. You know, like I even got a book that read. I mean, a lot, a lot of religious literature. Like everything we do is the woman's fault. Mm. How, how did it come to that? Like, you know, the woman was the one that was tempted by the servant. Right. She tempted that. And somehow, yeah. and then when you separate the two, the woman becomes Lilith or something, and she's evil, or I can't remember something. Lilith is described as Adam's original wife, even before Eve. And she then is, yeah, then she's identified as, a, as the, the demonic feminine. So you're wondering, what's the origin of that? I think, I think most simply, I think the simple answer is that, that men wrote it. <laughs> so why, why would men find women bad? Well, I think, I think it's fear of the other. Maybe it's, you know, it's, it's fear of the unknown. Maybe it's a, a sense of our, our own masculine inadequacy. Look, at, look what women can do. And look what, you know, whatever men do never even comes close to what a woman can do. Inferiority we, we, complex. It's, a, it's an inferiority complex. In other words, it's a, you know, we cannot give birth. Women seem to be the ones who create life. Now, eventually, it was people discovered that a man and a woman together, uh, that a man contributes something. But a, a, a woman births, right, every, every, each one of us, male or female, came out of a, of a woman. And the guy often isn't even around any longer. So, you know, what can men do that could possibly equal what a woman can do? Maybe there's just some, some uh, very deep resentment of that, that in inadequacy. In Navajo, society, huh? in Navajo, I found that women are superior. Hmm. In Navajo society is dominated by women, uh -huh. apparently. Uh -huh. in some of the, in Tahiti or other cultures, didn't they discover that it's a women-dominated culture? I mean, a lot has been written about that, and I think some of that has been de debunked. Oh, yeah. But, but you know, I, I'm not an expert in that. But certainly in the Western world and in, in most societies we know, there's male domination. The men are, are physically stronger in, in certain ways or for certain tasks. But I, I think a lot of it, is, it goes back to the, the fact that, that uh, women bring life into the world, and men, and men mm -hmm. resent that. It'll be interesting with brain science. Uh -huh. All the cognitive neuroscience research. Uh, uh -huh. There's even a book called Brain Sex that came out hmm. decades ago, looking at this continuum between men mm -hmm. and women. Mm -hmm. And it's not men, women. So even scientifically, they're starting hmm. to, you know, get a better understanding. Right. Of right. Yeah. You spoke about how um, there's a circle of characters in the Zohar and every twelve. Mm -hmm. Can you speak more about some of the characters as the rabbi Kiva? You mean the the one the people they run into on the road, or no, or just the rabbi? Which rabbis are? Uh huh. Rabbi Shimon and his circle. Fictionalized, yeah. Yeah. So Rabbi Shimon is the hero, and his son Rabbi Elazar, who is the one who said this about who drew who drove who out of the garden. Elazar is the son of Rabbi Shimon. He's a main character. Rabbi Abba is the scribe, and seems so. The, the three of them are kind of. Uh, you know, one triumvirate, or there are three main characters. The other rabbis are often describe it as a minion altogether. There, there seem to be a, a group of ten, including Rabbi Shimon. Some of them lived in different centuries. So you have Rabbi Shimon talking with people who lived 100 years or so later, and the author of the Zohar doesn't seem bothered by that. He's, right. Either he's dropping little hints that, you know, this is a, a made-up scenario, or he's just not bothered by the, by the chronology. But uh, there, there, there are others who just show up occasionally. Pinchas 
Ben Yair. Pinchas, the son of Yair, is seen as a specially holy figure. A lot of miracles happen to him. And the, ta- the Talmud talks about his donkey. Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair and his donkey, and his donkey was very righteous. His donkey <laughs> wouldn't eat food that wasn't kosher. His donkey wouldn't work on Shabbat. Rabbi Pinchas sold the donkey, and the guy who Rabbi Pinchas sold to was very upset because he was a non-Jew, and... and <laughs> And the donkey wouldn't work on Shabbat. <laughs> so he, he shows up as a hero. Different donkey. Different donkey. There's a lot of donkey stories. Yeah, no, no. But it's interesting. In, in, the, in the biblical story about Balaam and that's his donkey, when the Zohar discusses that, it brings up Pinchas ben Yair and his donkey mm-hmm. in that portion. So it, it ties together. Yeah. I understand what I've read so far. Zohar gives a pretty vivid description of the afterlife. It has, a lot, it has a lot about heaven and hell. It has a lot about the, the history of the soul, the, 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 des- the, the destiny of the soul. And what you referred to before, reincarnation. Reincarnation appears only occasionally in the Zohar. Later in Kabbalah becomes a more universal principle. But a lot of the Zohar is about the, yeah, the soul. The, uh, there's not a huge amount about the afterlife. I mean, certainly the Zohar does talk about the afterlife. The Mostly... Yeah, one, one, one beautiful thing it says is that uh, to get to heaven, you have to have a certain garment. This goes back to, you know, really medieval society. You know, you wouldn't dream of going to the palace in, you know, blue jeans. Something. So you have to, be, you have to be, be wearing the right garments for the right, and that's true still today. You know, the, the Grammys last night or whatever, you, you know, you have to show up well-dressed. But for the Zohar, you, to enter heaven, you have to have a splendid garment how do you attain that garment? Every good deed you do is one strand in a garment that you're weaving for yourself. So through your life, you're preparing a garment, and then when you die, you sail off. Your soul is garbed in that, and you enter heaven. So you're preparing for the afterlife day by day. It also gives a description of how you see all of your relatives who have gone before you mm-hmm. at the moment of death, and now you... Since you're already dead, you can actually see God. You can act, you know. Yeah, you see Shekhinah at the moment of death. And then there's, there's, there's some discussion, too, about, uh, about uh, who, you'll meet, who you'll meet there. Not a huge amount, but, 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 but a little there is. Mostly what the Zohar is saying is what you do here has an effect up above in the divine realm. What you do has an effect on God. We actually determine whether the, whether the male and female couple will unite. And God needs us. I would say there are three great statements the Zohar makes, Kabbalah makes. One is that God is ensof, infinite. The second, that God's equally male and female. So ensof is beyond gender. But if we're going to talk about God to balance the male and the female. And the third is that God needs us. God is incomplete without our active participation, which is a radical notion, too, that God is, is not perfect, but God, but the Zohar can say that because each of us is a fraction of God. Mm. So God has kind of splintered itself into each of us, and now we have to rediscover how we're part of the, of the whole. Do you believe in a literal afterlife? I, I like to take a, a wait-and-see attitude. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I really don't know what, what will happen. I don't know what will happen. I, 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 don't, I don't want to deny it or, or you know, claim that, that I know. 
I think you know. I think there's a, there's a there's a fear that each of us has that will disappear forever, and that encourages us to believe a lot of spectacular things, which which may be true or, or not true. But I uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe that the afterlife is memories that people have on Earth of how we mm. performed. That the soul mm -hmm. visits people on Earth through memories, mm -hmm. and that the memories, how you act, are remembered by your family and your people you've known uh -huh. on Earth. Uh -huh. And that is the afterlife. And people who have not fulfilled any righteousness either get forgotten right. more quickly. Mm -hmm. The loving acts get remembered. People always aggrandize someone who dies by remembering only the good. Right, right. And that may be a manifestation of yes. that's all that's valuable about that person. And that's why we were mm -hmm. accentuating it. That could be. I one other question, which is yeah. kind of unrelated. The seventy two names for God ah, that yes. we use as a vehicle for meditation. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. I just taught that this past Shabbat. I just taught that uh, two days ago because it's it's linked to the Torah portion. It's a little too complicated. If we don't have uh, Bibles in front of us, you know, there are various names of God in Kabbalah, and one is called the name of 72. This goes back to the crossing of the Red Sea. Just just write, if you want to write down Exodus, just write down Exodus 14, mm -hmm. 19 to 21. Exodus 14, 19 to 21, the three verses that say, the angel, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them in order to be a barrier between the Israelites and the Egyptians, right? So the Israelites have come to the Red Sea, and now Pharaoh is catching up to them. So the angel who had been going before the Israelites now goes behind them to block, to be a barrier between Israel and Egypt. And the pillar of cloud went from before them to behind them, and it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud and darkness, but it gave light to the night, so that one did not come near the other. Israel couldn't, Egypt couldn't approach Israel. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and God caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Okay, so those are, those are the three verses. I read them all as, as one. So those three verses describe, you could say, the most dramatic moment of all of Israelite history up to then. Right? They're at the Red Sea, and now they're protected. Moses stretches out his hand, the staff, and God splits the water. Those three verses, each of them has 72 letters. It just happens to be three verses in a row have the same number of letters. Now, we don't know if it's chance or if the author did that intentionally, but three verses in a row at the most dramatic moment have the same number of letters. So there's a special divine name composed in the following way. You take the first letter of the first verse, mm -hmm. the last letter of the second verse, mm -hmm. the first letter of the third verse. That becomes one triplet. And then you go on, second letter, second from the last letter, second letter. Mm -hmm. Third letter of the first verse, third from the end of the second verse, third letter of the third verse. So you end up getting 72 triplets of letters, really 216 letters altogether, 72 three-letter combinations, and that's called the name of 72. And the Zohar implies that that's how God split the sea, by pronouncing that name. 
by, by really by these three verses. These, these three verses which describe the splitting of the sea turn into a divine name which split the sea. And that's the origin of the, the name of 72. Mm. He, it's very complicated. Right. But, but from what I've been told is if you have a human need uh -huh. to understand, uh -huh. then you invoke one of those names. So, meditate, yeah, the, meditate, yeah, the, 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 the Kabbalah Center, you know, which is the group in L.A. who got Madonna into Kabbalah and kind of the mm -hmm. modern pop Kabbalah, they're especially fond of assigning one of these triplets to people. They say, this is your name. Focus on this name, meditate on, your, on this name, and all your problems will be solved. I think there are a lot of shady aspects to that, to that, <laughs> uh, to that, that Kabbalah Center. But, huh? That's not an ancient um, I mean, there is, there, is, there, is, there is a lot. This name is referred to in the Kabbalah, and the Zohar speaks of it as being very powerful. I've never heard of you know, assigning a particular triplet to individuals before the Kabbalah Center. There may be some tradition like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Kabbalah Center, I don't mean to, to just badmouth them. They've done some good things and bad things. Uh, they've made Kabbalah. They made people aware that there is such a thing as Kabbalah. You know, so a huge number of people now know about Kabbalah because of Madonna. Mm -hmm. You know, you could say Madonna did more than Gershom Sholem <laughs> to, make, to make the Kabbalah famous. But uh, there, there are negative aspects to what they do, preying on people's weaknesses and, and trying to get money from them, you know, by saying, you know, contribute money and your, your hospital operation will go well. And so uh, there's definitely some a dark side to what they do. But they've also made, made people aware that there is such a thing as Kabbalah. And then people go to the rabbi and say, well, what is this? I never heard about this. And the rabbi says, uh, I never heard about it either in, 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 in rabbinical school because it's the one thing that wasn't taught in rabbinical school. Bible, Midrash, philosophy, Maimonides, Talmud, all that was taught. Kabbalah was hardly ever taught. So it embarrasses rabbis into having to find out more about it, which is, which is good. You had a thought or question. I have a couple questions. First, following from what you're saying now, yeah. I, my understanding always was that unless an individuals learn it, in Talmud and all the, uh, and the Torah, right. and that it's dangerous to study uh, the Kabbalah. Unless you already know that. Yes. And there, were, there were various restrictions put on the study of Kabbalah. Sometimes you hear that you have to be 40. Actually, some Kabbalists said 20. But I think the point is to reach a certain level of maturity. I don't think you have to know the whole Talmud before you study Zohar. I think what you, what you really need for appreciating Zohar is the following some appreciation of how Torah is expanded by Midrash. Now, what is Midrash? Midrash is rabbinic, imaginative interpretation of the Bible. It's really how, how the Torah be turned into Judaism, right? Rabbinic Judaism, we were talking about this before. Rabbinic Judaism is simply taking the Torah and applying it to changing times. The technique that they employed to do that was Midrash. So Midrash is an imaginative interpretation of the Torah, trying to update it, trying to make it relevant for today. So if you, if you can see how Torah begins to expand through Midrash, it's not so hard to make the next jump to, to Zohar. But you need some appreciation of Torah itself and Midrashic creativity. And some of the, one of the reasons for those restrictions is because of the danger of Kabbalah. What, what's the danger of Kabbalah? One danger is madness. Because if you start to question your own self, and your ego identity, you can easily, you know, become impossible to live with. 
Hmm. Right? People who, who are convinced that they are the Messiah or that they are God, we know all the mad and crazy and violent outcomes of that. So I think there's a psychological danger when you flirt with mysticism. So it's important to have it in some context with a friend, with a teacher, in a group, to employ a good deal of common sense, you know, to, to be your own critic as you imagine different identities you, you, you might explore. So there's a psychological danger, and there's a related social danger, which is kind of, you know, who needs the rabbi? If I can find my own path to God, if I can connect with God, why bother with tradition, with Jewish law, with practice? So there was a threat to the power structure of the time, too. Rabbis who were in control and, and, and just all the requirements and the strictures of Jewish law, there was a fear that people would, would just throw all that away if they had their own spiritual experience. So I, th I think it's good to question some of those power structures. But traditionally, that was seen as, as, as a real danger. There's also the one-upmanship. I, I wear a red ribbon. I'm, I'm more than you. Yeah. You know, I have the knowledge that you don't have. Right, right. The Zohar has a little bit of that, too. The Zohar sometimes seems to be, you think the Midrash goes far? Look what I can do. <laughs> the Zohar is trying to outdo the, the Midrash sometimes. <laughs> one second. She, she had one more question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, meditation is an important, you know, part part of this. There are meditative techniques the Kabbalah developed, meditating on divine names or on, on letters of the Aleph Bet, and meditation on breath. Abu Lafia, Abraham Abu Lafia was a Kabbalist around the time of the Zohar. He has very in developed and complicated techniques of meditation. But yeah, meditation is central to this. And I think a lot of what the Zohar is doing is meditating on the Bible and then coming up with new insights, with new interpretation. Once again, that is meant to be something that is done under the guidance of an experienced mm -hmm. teacher. Yeah, it's important to have some training and, yeah. and safeguards, and right? right. Can, can yeah. you explain just historically why the, the Hasidism came out of Eastern Europe yeah. as a reaction to all the intellectualism? Why did Kabbalah develop just after my mind? What historically happened in the Jewish mm -hmm. community at that time that would motivate the development of this aspect of Judaism? Yeah, some of it is a reaction against Maimonides. Right? Maimonides had, had described God in such an abstract way, it was hard to relate to that kind of abstract divinity. So Kabbalah says, well, Maimonides is right. Ultimately, God is infinity. But here are the sefirot. Here are the ways that you can connect with God, or that God's involved in your life. So some of it was a reaction against Maimonides. Hasidism is really a popularization of Kabbalah. It's really the first pop Kabbalah. It's, take, it's taking the ideas of Kabbalah and trying to spread them to the masses. I mean, now we think of Hasidism as ultra-Orthodox, which it is. But when it began, it aroused a lot of opposition on the part of the Orthodox. I mean, because they were saying you can, you can love God or God loves you even if you haven't memorized the Talmud. Even if you don't spend your whole day studying, you can be a fully devout Jew. Music and dancing and joy. And they would sometimes spend so much time singing and dancing, they might not get to the prayers until it was a little bit after the prescribed time. 
So it aroused opposition, and some of the fiercest opposition was on the part of Kabbalists. And the Kabbalists couldn't disagree with it with the ideas, but it was because of their free style or because they, they were being carried away emotionally and maybe violating some of the, of the minutia. And the debate continues. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, now Hasidism is ultra-Orthodox, but you have new forms of, of, of rebellion and, and questions. I think we'll pause there. Good to study with you. Great. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.